0: Hello, and welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling the political roo from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, Feminist Coffee Hour on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter at FemCoffeePod. You can find us on AskFM slash Feminist Coffee Hour. And you can email us at hour at gmail.com. So today we're discussing an interview that Elizabeth did and if you could give us some background on that.
1: Thanks, Karen. Uh, today we're interviewing Anastasia Bodner. She is on Twitter at Genetic Maze. And I wanted to talk to her because she's a scientist who specializes in genetically modified crops, specifically corn. So, Genetic maize, you get it. And I had some questions for her. Uh, it was really cool to be able to talk to a scientist about anything I wanted to for an hour. There are a couple of things I want to clarify, but I want to do that at the end of the podcast. So take a listen. If you have questions, you can always tweet at us or email us. Let us know your feedback. And we're going to have some footnotes at the end of the interview to just discuss a few things that came up that uh, Anastasia and I didn't get to talk about.
0: Cool. Yeah. And another thing about um, this interview that was really interesting is that... We didn't agree necessarily with everything she said, and we'll talk about that more at the end. But if you're listening and you find that you're hearing something that doesn't sound like something that would come out of our mouths, uh, you're not wrong, and we'll be discussing it at the end.
1: So thank you so much. I know that we've been trying to do this for a whole year. (laughs) That's really ridiculous. (laughs) So, uh, would you introduce yourself to our audience?
2: Yes. Hi, I'm Anastasia Bodner. I'm Policy Director of Biology Fortified.
1: So, uh, you said that the one thing that you really wanted to talk about was the science march. Did you get to go to the science
2: march in Washington, D.C.? I did, and it exceeded my expectations. Did you carry a sign? Well, so I actually didn't march, but I did go and I delivered a teach-in, which was pretty awesome. I know that there was a little bit of a lot of the folks who were doing the marching weren't, weren't big fans of agricultural sciences, specifically biotechnology. And I was super excited that one of the founders of the march actually contacted our, our organization and was hoping that we could participate and give some more balanced perspectives about biotech. And so um, I got to deliver an hour talk and answer a lot of questions, and that was just fantastic. It's tough because whenever you're delivering like the intro biotech 101 class, it's so huge, you know, and people have a million questions and it's really tough to decide what to cover. But I think one of the most important areas to go over is how we got to where we are. So, you know, uh, I went through the history of of plant breeding over thousands of years, you know, how 10,000 years ago, humans were modifying plants and maybe they weren't doing it You know, with Agrobacterium, but we were doing it. And so I just sort of, you know, led people down that path and talked about natural examples of gene transfer and tried to set that stage of modern biotechnology might sound a little scary, but really it's not that different from what happens in nature and what we've been doing forever. I think that's really interesting. And there's like five different questions that sprung
1: to mind. So. You know, my next question was going to be, what did the science march mean to you? And you can answer that. But I was just thinking from what you said, it seems like there's a couple of different like interesting intersections between biotechnology and public policy, and then also biotechnology and, you know, the current Trump administration. So any of those questions, if you
2: want to, whatever jumps out at you first. Yeah, well, you know, I think the second question is surprisingly enough, actually easy to answer. (laughs) So uh, we recently got a new Secretary of Agriculture, right, Sunny Purdue, and he's shown himself to be a very science-based, rational, pro-agriculture person. I don't anticipate that there's going to be a lot of new blockage, at least from the USDA on biotech, um, if anything, I think that things might maybe go a little bit more smoothly. Uh, and that's just my personal opinion. So I guess we'll just have to see. But, I mean, Republicans are pro-business, and biotech is big business right now. So, I mean, that's that's where we are. You know, I, I was just reading an article today about the Aqua Advantage Salmon. So for your listeners, aqua salmon is a genetically engineered salmon that grows super fast, and so you get a market-sized salmon with less resources, which, you know, is arguably more sustainable than harvesting wild salmon. It's taken years and years and years for it to get through the regulatory process, and on the science side, nobody's really sure why, because the science looks pretty clear. You know, they've got a lot of many, many layers of protections that the salmon can't get loose. And even if they do happen to get loose, they can't reproduce. And even if one of them could randomly reproduce, it wouldn't be in the right place, not in the right environment, and their offspring would die. So it's sort of like you've got so many layers of protection, it's, I I mean, it's more risky to have like cows and goats, you know, because they can get loose to reproduce. And in fact, in the case of pigs, we do have a huge feral swine problem. So arguably, farming pigs is more dangerous to the environment than this aqua-advantage salmon is. <laughs> it definitely
1: is. Um, I know I've written a couple, a post on my blog about KFOS and Democracy Now just had a whole thing about the spraying hog manure and stuff like that. It's kind of awful. I read that article. I need to look more into it. That seems kind of crazy. So I
2: had a question though, actually, about this salmon thing. Would that help with overfishing? So aquaculture is still up and coming, right? There's still some challenges that need to be overcome. And I think there's a lot of potential there to take the burden off of our wild fisheries. So there's a lot of farm tilapia, but as far as I know, a lot of that is grown overseas. And I think it would be really awesome to have more aquaculture in North America, you know, whether it's Canada or Mexico or the U.S. or even dipping down into Panama, which is one of the proposed production facilities for Aqua Advantage. But still, that's a heck of a lot more local than Thailand. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) It's a good point. Thinking about food miles in terms of climate change.
2: Exactly. But so, you know, there's a huge appetite for fish. And I think that health wise, you know, although I'm, I'm not a registered dietitian, I think that it's pretty established that everyone should be eating more fish. And this would be a way to produce salmon and potentially other fishes in the future with reduced resources, making aquaculture more attractive. So maybe there would be more farms starting up. I don't really understand how that could be a bad thing. Right. And (laughs) I'm just thinking about
1: what you said about diet. I know we're getting a a little bit of a tangent here, but this is interesting to me also. Um, You're talking about like the omega-3s and stuff?
2: Yeah. And just in general, like fishes, uh, they have... The healthy fats, and then even when you're talking about fish that have less fat, like like a tilapia or other white fish, like it's it's a it's a good healthy protein. Like I mean, we we eat a lot of fish fillets in my house too because they're they're easy to cook, you know, and they're more it's more interesting than chicken sometimes, and easier to cook than beef, you know. So here we are. Um, I guess then that leads me to my other question: Does farmed fish have less mercury than? wild caught i haven't looked into that specifically but it should like so i guess the the biggest concern for mercury is the food chain right so there's mercury from coal plants it bioaccumulates in plants and then those plants are fed to or eaten by small fish which are eaten by bigger fish etc until you get to tuna and that that particular type of mercury that's harmful right because not all types of mercury are the same that particular type bioaccumulates and particularly tuna and um, other large carnivorous fish. So if you move tuna to a aquaculture environment and you were feeding them stuff where you knew what they were eating, then yeah, you could feed them things intentionally that don't have mercury in them, then you wouldn't have bioaccumulation. So you'd remove that fear of mercury, you know, both actual and perceived.
1: I guess that brings us back to the science march because if we keep the clean power plan, then we'd have less coal power plants, <laughs> and then less mercury in our fish but to me i see all of these things as connected that's what kind of why i wanted to talk to you they truly are do you care to comment at all on any of the criticisms of the science march either with regards to whether it should have been more diverse or people said diversity didn't matter or something that upset me about it and i'm more of a lay person regards to science is talking about whether or not it was too political and how I felt like a lot of the organizers got mixed up between non-political and non-partisan.
2: I'm just little old me, so I didn't, you know, have big blog posts or big articles in Medium or whatever where I talked about my my views on this. But, yeah, I had a lot of concerns about the science march going in. And really the only reason why I agreed to participate was because they, you know, gave me a whole hour to talk about GMOs, and pretty much if somebody, anybody gave me an hour to talk about GMOs, I'd say, sure, let's go. (laughs) And... I was really, really concerned about the partisanship. And I was concerned about, you know, anytime you get a large group of people together, there's some views that are going to get buried, you know, some minority views. And, you know, whether that's diversity concerns or, you know, particular scientific perspectives, you know, I don't think they did any studies, but it would be really interesting to see what were the backgrounds of the marchers. I know that they said maybe like 70% 70% were non-scientists, which is super exciting, you know, because anytime we can get non-scientists interested in science, like, that's great. But of those maybe 30% that were scientists, what were they? Well, you know, so in the Facebook groups, there was a lot of diversity. Like, there are people saying that there were, you know, chemists or marine biologists or archaeologists. Like, there was tons of diversity in the Facebook groups. But there was definitely some anti-science presence, I guess, in the preparation to the march. Uh, so a lot of people were at least concerned about that aspect. You know, I, I can't really speak too much to the diversity aspect. I know that they were trying to have a diversity in speakers and, you know, making sure that the events were accessible. You know, I know they had interpreters and at the march, they did a pretty good job with physical accessibility, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much they succeeded, but I know that it looked like they are trying. But as far as like the intellectual diversity, you know, there was a lot of folks who were very critical about biotech and vaccines and, you know, going against the established science on pesticides and a lot of these issues that are so controversial, but the science behind them really isn't. Mm-hmm. That to me was very interesting. You know, it's like there was this um, Pew Research study back in 2015 that um, I actually I used I, a little discussion about that in the intro to my teach in. What was it, like 88% something like that of AAAS members agreed that biotechnology is a safe technology. What is AAAS? It's the American Academy for the Advancement of Science. Okay.
1: I do want to ask you about GMOs. That's actually my next question and why I wanted to have you on the show. But if I could back up just one second. I just was curious about your opinion on this as someone who's, you know, thinking about the science march. My local science march actually said not no partisan signs, which I understand, but they said no political signs. And to me... I do have somewhat of a background in social sciences, political science, public policy. And to me, almost everything is political, but not necessarily partisan. And the sign I was thinking of, but I didn't make, was going to say, have you ever checked the weather report, used GPS for directions, gone on the Internet? You're using government-funded science. To me, that's political because the budget is decided by a political process, but it's not partisan. I don't know. What do you think?
2: I think you're spot on. That distinction between political and partisan is incredibly important. You know, I think if you polled Democratic and Republican politicians on the budget and what they want to see funding for, it's not like all Republicans want to defund NIH. And and we saw that in the temporary budget that was passed. You know, science funding was pretty much left fairly consistent except for EPA. but.
1: I think with the temporary, and um, we're recording this on May 5th, 2017, and then we always have to say now because politics are changing so fast in this country. Um, right now, I think originally the proposed budget was to cut the EPA by 30%, and right now it's a 1% cut. But we'll see what, what eventually happens. However, to um, the main reason I wanted to have you on this podcast was, it was a couple of years ago now, I saw something that you had said on Twitter about GMOs. I listened to another podcast that you did about the science and, um, about how in one of the studies that they did, they actually used rats that were prone to grow tumors. And that was just totally mind blowing. So I guess my first big question for you is what does the general public get wrong about GMOs, especially considering you said, what was it? 80% or 88% of of scientists think that they're safe.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much it's, this is such a huge topic, but I think I think one of the main things is that we put them in a bucket together, right? So we we call them GMOs, genetically modified organisms. But realistically, we have to consider each one separately. I'm an agricultural scientist. I've actually done biotechnology. I could easily imagine, theoretically, something bad that I could make. Like There are natural compounds that are deadly, and you could put those into a plant and say, here's your breakfast, and you could kill someone. Is that realistic? Maybe for terrorists, but, you know, they're not going to follow the laws anyways. So I don't know if it makes sense to ban a whole technology because some bad guy might use it for something bad. Because in that case, we should also ban baseball bats. And I think that's kind of what some activist groups and then by you know listening to them, some members of the public get that that's the problem. Yes, any technology could be used to make something Harmful. Does that mean that we should ban the entire technology? In very few cases, have we said yes to that question. So, with biotech, the potential for good is huge, and the potential for bad is maybe also huge, but that's why we have regulation, just to make sure that we're not, no one's intentionally or unintentionally creating something that could be harmful. And I think that maybe people don't have an understanding of those both regulatory and non-regulatory controls that are in place to make sure that the technology doesn't produce something harmful. And in a lot of ways, biotech is the most regulated technology that we have. What kind of
1: regulations and safeguards are in place?
2: I think we'll first talk about the companies themselves. So right now, getting a biotech crop to market is expensive. And so really, the only people who are involved in the, in this marketplace are pretty large companies with pretty large budgets. You know, let's imagine that you're giant company X and you want to release a new biotech crop that you think is going to help you sell seeds. Aren't you going to do all of the checks you possibly can to make sure that you're not going to harm your direct consumer, who's the farmer, or, you know, the down this downstream consumer, the general public, who's going to end up eating your product? I mean, companies, at least in the U.S., our tort law is pretty strong, Meaning that if you get hurt because of a company, you know we can we can sue pe- we can sue companies and hold them accountable when they've done something bad. And so if it became apparent that some company released the product that caused a lot of harm, they would end up going bankrupt, or at least facing some financial damages, significant financial damages. I mean that's my semi-naive. I'm sure my my husband, who's a lawyer, would have a lot more to say on that topic. <laughs>
1: I understand that argument in theory. To me, the fact that, you know, this stuff does get tested through the scientific process, I think I trust that a lot more than I than I trust the free market.
2: But who's doing that process? So I mean, let's step back for a second and think about the process. Mm-hmm. A company or a scientist or researcher or anybody identifies a gene that they want in a plant.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So for me, we identified corn hemoglobin. Uh, or you know, corn globin, we wanted to put that in the corn seeds and not have it express at high levels. So what did we do? We transformed a whole ton of corn plants, grew them up, and looked for off-types. We wanted to see, did anything weird happen? Was there any mutations that might be due to the transformation process? If there was, those got kicked out of the breeding program. So any unintended consequences from that first step are gone, or at least at a visual level. <laughs> You know, and then then you move on to a more trait-based evaluation. Did the insertion work? Does it do what we wanted it to do? You know, is the protein there? What levels are it expressed at? You know, and then you do sort of some general analysis, like, are the transgenic and the non-transgenic, do they have the same levels of protein? Do they have the same levels of starches, fats? You know, are there any gross—and by gross, I mean— large-scale changes that you can see uh, easily. If there's anything that looks funny or it didn't work, then those get out to you. So you're left with, you know, a smaller number of plants that you move on in your breeding program. And in each step, if anything looks wrong, then they go. And that's before you even get to the re- regulatory process where you start really examining it for unintended consequences. And that process that I just described was our little, you know, low-budget Academic lab, you can imagine what the big companies are doing as far as pre market testing or pre regulatory testing, even and to prove that the trait works and that there's not any unintended consequences for the insur- insertion. Because even if the insertion works and they've got the trait of interest, you know, whatever protein they want is being produced, everything's working great, if it turns out that there's a yield drag and they've reduced the yield of their seed, that's not going to work for them either. So it's partially that free market stuff, but it's also just like they're, they're looking at what are we going to sell? And if we start selling stuff that has like a big problem, is it, is it going to cause problems for us down the road? So while I don't have like a 100% faith in corporations, I think that the nature of capitalism is that if you sell a crappy product, you're going out of business. <laughs>
1: Maybe. I mean, I just heard an interview about the uh, Remington shotguns that sometimes go off without pulling the trigger. And the cover-up. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I'm a little bit skeptical. I mean, I'll put the link in the show notes. I'll, I'll send it to you. And it's, yeah, that's the state of mind I'm in. But I, I do hear what you're saying. I I personally am no longer skeptical about GMOs. I think, to me, the argument seems to be, you know, say, Monsanto did this unethical thing. Therefore, GMOs are bad. And to me, the science of genetically modified organisms is completely separate than any individual company's corporate ethics. My next question for you is why do you think people are so misinformed and do you think there's anyone who profits from demonizing GMOs? 100%.
2: So you're an activist group, you know, an environmentalist group, right? And you run off donations. And what makes people donate? Is it, you know, hey, everything's going pretty good. Our pesticide use is going down and, you know, endangered species are being saved. Hey, give us money. Nope, that's not going to (laughs) work. They have to scare you. They have to say, "Oh my God, something is going to come and kill you, and it's going to kill your babies." And boy, howdy, you better give us a ton of money, otherwise, you know, no one's going to stop it. So, sure, any group that's trying to scare the public is doing it because they want donations.
1: Can you think of any specifics? The only one I can think of is Dr. Bronner's soap, and that's not a nonprofit. That's-
2: I don't know. Do they ask for donations? I think that no, just might-
1: it's that's, that they're they're a corporation. I mean, they give away a lot of their profits. But I'm just trying yeah. to think like mainstream, like I don't really see like Sierra Club or NRDC or 350.org or any of those people like fear mongering on GMOs. I just see random viral stuff on Facebook and I am i don't know even where it started coming from or there is an anti-science left, which is where <laughs> I see it coming from, um, an anti-vaccine, anti-GMO left. It's coming from two places. There, there
2: are some smaller groups. I mean, they're not, they're definitely not on the Scale of Sierra Club, they're probably honestly more on the scale of my nonprofit or or bigger. I I can think of a couple, but I'm not gonna name names. So there are definitely activist groups who make it their business to make money off scaring people about biotech and pesticides and related topics. But I, you're right, I think there's also like folks that just share stuff and even make stuff. Like there's YouTube users who make all these crazy videos and stuff. And I'm not sure why. I guess that's like delving more into like the psychology and social sciences of why people accept conspiracy theories without evidence. If you think about all these ideas, you know, this, this idea that capitalism maybe isn't a good thing and corporations have hurt people in the past and maybe they're still hurting people. And, and you're right. There is evidence that there's lots of evidence, corporations, they want to make money. They want to serve their shareholders. And, you know, maybe sometimes that means they're not doing everything the way that they should, especially if the regulations aren't as strong in that particular area as they should be. Mm-hmm. So I think that stuff like the anti capitalism plays right into all these ideas of okay, well, big corporations are scary. Particularly there's some corporations that have done bad things in the past, like Monsanto, who really should change your name when they switched to a seed company, in my opinion, but that's where we are. They they did bad things in the past and, you know, Now here we are, so it's easy for people to think, okay, I'm anti-corporations, so I'm also going to be anti this technology that's made by corporations. But they don't step back and think, oh, well, there's also tons of academics and small companies and family-owned businesses who also would like to use this technology. And by demonizing the tech, we're actually making it harder for all these other entities to make it to enter the marketplace and making it easier for a few big companies to use that technology exclusively, which is a huge problem. That's interesting. Are there
1: small mom and pop GMO companies?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's business and, and in global business stuff gets bought up really quick. But I think I think um, Okanagan is a great example of a small company. They recently got bought by an exatron which sounds like a you know villain to me but but i'm sure they're just fine <laughs> but um yeah so okanagan was a, a small company they they uh you know were apple breeders and then they developed the arctic apple which is a non-browning apple that i cannot wait to put in my daughter's lunchbox you know before they were bought by an exotron, they were a small company just trying to get through the regulatory system that's very interesting what are some good
1: resources for learning more about gmos for the average person
2: Nathaniel Johnson of Grist. He did a GMO series.
1: Okay, I'll link to it on the on the on the blog post yeah. in the show notes. I think one time on Twitter you told me a book called Tomorrow's Table. You still recommend that?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. That's by Pam Ronald, who's a um, emeritus member of our board, actually. And uh, she's a a rice breeder and, you know, just really knows a lot about the science. And I think more importantly, Pam understands a lot of the social issues that have to do with agriculture and biotechnology as well. Her husband's actually an organic farmer and runs the, the organic farm on UC Davis. And so between the two of them, they bring like this fascinating perspective um and tomorrow's table it's funny, a lot of books on this topic become dated fairly quickly, but I think that the core concepts in tomorrow's table still stand uh totally true. Okay. Speaking of organic food, I think you tweeted something about organic food skepticism.
1: Um what does that mean? Aren't pesticides bad for you?
2: Uh, well, pesticides are bad for you if you use them improperly, yes. <laughs> Organic plays into these natural inclinations that we all have. We want food to come from nature. You know, we imagine going and picking an apple off a tree and it should be a sunny day and, you know, whatever. But nobody realizes that when you go and pick the apple off the tree, if nobody's protected it, you know, it's probably got some insects in it and the tree is probably half dying from some disease and you know whatever like because that's nature too. And nature isn't monoculture. No it's not and we could probably spend a whole nother episode talking about polyculture because I'm pretty passionate about that too but. Can you just give that a quick definition? Oh sure yeah so basically most of our crops including apples you know even the good stuff that we like broccoli etc it's pretty much all grown where it's one crop in a space and that's it. But there's multiple ways that you could diversify. You could either you know, alternate rows or have smaller sections together. You could intercrop, which would be instead of just planting one species like alfalfa, you could plant multiple different types of grasses and things like that all together. And that would create more diversity in the landscape. Um, and then the other way to do it is with rotation. So you plant one thing this year and in the same plot of land, you plant something else the following year and then hopefully have you know, like a five-year cycle where you're planting all this different stuff. So, yeah, monoculture is a big issue. But it's one of those things that people connect with GMOs where, like I said, we have monoculture and broccoli, but there's no GMO broccoli. That's not GMO's fault. (laughs) I think it has to do with we don't eat a lot of diversity. I mean, even the best of us, I mean, I try really hard to eat the rainbow every day, you know, eat all the different colored fruits and vegetables and stuff. But even then, like, I might eat 10 different species. I know that I should be eating more amaranth and sorghum and, you know, things like that, but they're not really available in the stores. And so I I feel like if we want to stop the monoculture problem, it's not banning GMOs is going to help. It's people trying to eat more diverse grains and, you know, find more diverse fruits and vegetables.
1: That's really interesting that there's no such thing as genetically modified broccoli because... I think one of my favorite sources on this topic is from the onion genetically modified broccoli shrieks benefits at shopper. So (laughs) (laughs) just one more question about organic food is to me, it's kind of like a labor or a worker's rights issue. Isn't it safer to work on a farm that's uh, organic than one that's using pesticides?
2: It's such a great question. So organic doesn't mean pesticide free, Mm -hmm. you know um, they still apply different types of pesticides and still require protective gear. And to me, the real workers' rights issue is that a lot of our farm workers, you know, are, I mean, they're generally going to be lower income. Um, they might not have a lot of education, and many of them don't speak English or don't read English. And so we have folks that are desperately in need of safety information and you know, they might not be getting it. And so we do have regulations under OSHA, Occupational Safety.
1: Occupational Health and Safety Administration. Yeah.
2: Occupational, yes. I'm trying to define my acronyms. Um. There's a lot
1: of them <laughs> yeah. in the government and in science and in environmentalism <laughs> and in everything.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, and so whether it's organic or not, you know, the, the owners or the managers need to follow those laws and make sure that their employees are using proper protective gear. But again, this is not a GMO problem or a pesticide problem. This is our food system where we have folks coming into the country illegally to work the farms because it's a low-paid job. And even if they try to offer more money, there are many cases across the U.S., People just don't take the jobs. Nobody wants to pick tomatoes. It's a terrible job. Mm-hmm. So until we have tomato picking robots, mm-hmm. we're going to have folks coming into the country legally or even legally to do this job who may not be getting the right safety information.
1: Yeah, and they're so, vulnerable to exploitation if they're undocumented. Yes,
2: yes. Yeah, that's that's the right way to put it. They're vulnerable to exploitation. And some farmers or you know, landowners, managers, however you want to call them, are more or less likely to exploit. I think there's probably many many examples of managers who want to take care of their employees whether they're here legally or not, make sure that they have the protective gear and follow all the laws and all the pesticide labels, but I think there's probably a lot of examples that don't. And then we also have the problem of people who are living in marginal spaces. So if you, you know, set up a shack on the side of the farm and that's where you're living during the farm season, then you're in closer proximity to those pesticides that are being sprayed. And, you know, maybe there's no maybe about it. There's definitely research that shows if you're a pregnant woman and you're being exposed to that direct pesticide application, like if you're eating produce, like, if you know, like when I was pregnant, I ate a lot of produce, trying really hard to take care of my baby. And, you know, that's fine. Pesticide residues on produce by the time they get to the grocery store are safe. There's lots of research to show that. But if you're pregnant and you're right next to the field when they're being applied, then that's not safe. And so we need better protections for those people to prevent them from being exploited, you know, to, to reduce that risk. And, and again, like I said, that's not a pesticide problem. It's an exploitation problem. And I, I don't know how to fix that.
1: I think there's a lot of interest in um, like a supply chain. With regards to food and there's an article about how, you know, younger people are much more interested in more information about food. What do you think people can or should do to to protect themselves about food safety with regards to both grocery stores or restaurants?
2: Yeah, food safety is it's such a funny funny problem. Like, you know, folks are concerned about all this stuff that, you know, isn't really a safety problem, but then like don't work to protect themselves from actual food safety issues. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, there's the basics. Wash your produce with, you know, maybe a little bit of soap and and water. And I'm guilty of eating those bag salads myself all the time because they're just so convenient and I'm trying to get my vegetables in. But I guess it's mostly just, like, being smart about holding times and temperatures. Like, that's the main – that's the simple – dumb thing that everybody does. You know, you might pack your lunch, forget to put a ice pack in it. And then you've got something with mayonnaise or something with eggs or something with meat that's been sitting out for more than four hours. Bacteria have been multiplying and bam, then you have a bad evening or a bad next day, you know? So it's just like those, those basic level things that I think a lot of times we forget to do in our busy lives that we can do to help protect ourselves and our families.
1: Something else I want to ask you about. I think that there is a gendered panic around soy. It's the idea that soy is a phytoestrogen, and so little boys shouldn't have soy milk or even yams, and I think some people take this to a bit of an extreme. Would you care to debunk that? or? This is not your area of expertise, I understand.
2: Okay, yes. I have heard quite a bit about this problem. In fact, because my daughter has a dairy allergy. So when you would normally be giving a toddler, uh, she's almost three, you would normally be giving a toddler cheese and macaroni and cheese and quesadillas and cheese sandwiches because kids like cheese and milk and yogurt and ice cream and all those things. She eats soy for all those products. And, you know, I eat a lot of tofu and edamame and... I'm encouraging her to eat those products as well. And so, yeah, so I was like, hmm, is this something that we should be concerned about? I don't want her to hit puberty externally or anything like that. And Surely I'd be concerned if I had a male child as well. I think, as always, it's perspective that matters. So I'm sure you've seen, there's like a meme that goes around and people set it up, just like displays and stuff sometimes like at uh, public events, where they have jars of jelly beans or uh, M&Ms or something like that, where it's like, this is how much Estrogen is in a steak, and this is how much estrogen is in soy, and this is how much estrogen is in birth control pills or something. But that's what birth control pills are. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, so that's just dumb. We'll just throw that one out. (laughs) But, you know, yes, sure. You know, the number of estrogen ish molecules in a plant might be higher, but I think it's important to consider the bioactivity of those molecules and. Of the folks that promote those types of memes, I have never gotten a straight answer out of them, and I haven't seen like, and I've tried to do research myself to try to find information. I've never gotten straight information, like is a molecule of cow estrogen, which is present in milk, the same as a molecule of soy estrogen, as far as you know the way that our body reacts to it. I mean, I'm just imagining it because again, I haven't gotten clear information on this topic, but. Imagining that there's similarity between both of those molecules and the human estrogen receptors, you know, that it can fit in those, then I'm guessing that the plant ones probably don't fit as well as the cow ones do. We generally feed kids a lot of milk, so if your child is drinking a ton of cow milk, you should probably be more concerned about that than, you know, them occasionally eating some tofu. But nobody ever thinks about it that way.
1: Yeah, no, that's interesting to me. To me, I I just thought it was a silly like panic about gender or something like that. Like I'm skeptical of most of that stuff that I memes. So, (laughs) but I think it's because I had a good uh, background in research methods, but I I, not most most people don't. So
2: you're very lucky. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, being, being a parent, especially being a mom, I feel like we're targets of a lot of just craziness. And
1: I'm nodding my head very vigorously for our listeners.
2: (laughs) You know, like I remember, I would go to um, what is it, motherhood, maternity, to like, you know, get some clothes yeah. for my big old belly, and they would have like these kind of fearmongery stuff right there in the store. Like I remember, some girl handed me a pamphlet for the Environmental Working Group's Dirty Dozen and was giving away samples of granola bars that were free of pesticides, uh-huh. whatever. And I was just like, seriously, like, I'm just here to buy some clothes. You don't need to be fear mongering to me. But then, like, you know, somebody didn't have the benefit of that research methods class or background. Mm -hmm. And that probably you'd be reading that and be like, oh, my God, you know, I've been eating all of these whatever top of the dirty list. And, you know, but realistically, you should be eating as many produce, as much produce as you possibly can when you're pregnant, because that's, you know, got all the healthy nutrients. And it's, you know, anyway, it uh, just makes me so mad. So, but I would like to say that because of the frustration, we've actually uh, started a uh, There's a documentary um, that a, a friend of mine here in the D.C. area started um, called Science Moms. I guess it's like a mini documentary uh, where she interviews myself and a couple of other moms. We're either scientists or you know science you know scientific thinking folks you know about different topics like like GMOs and pesticides and uh, vaccines. So when's it coming out? Oh, that's a great question. So I know that they're doing a a, a premiere at um, CSI, which is like some kind of skeptics conference. And yeah, so they're going to be doing that um, in the fall. I think it's in October. And then there, there might be a couple other premieres, but it should be it should be out like for, you know, general watching fairly soon we're also starting up a comic strip series uh you know to talk about you know like our adventures in the grocery store and other places trying to find information that's not too scary trying to fight those that misinformation and and find a path to more scientific thinking and i think that that parent audience is really important you know to reach um it's just so easy. I mean, I've even myself fallen prey to some of that stuff. I took fenugreek for a long time. Oh yeah. I
1: heard that that doesn't work, right? It's to produce more breaks, breast milk. Yeah. It
2: totally doesn't, but I had a really hard time producing enough in the early days and now I can't get my daughter to wean, but that's okay. <laughs> that's another problem. <laughs> but, but I still took it, you know, yeah. I was like, you know, I, I know this doesn't, this doesn't work. I can't find any scientific evidence for it, but still like I was so like desperate mm-hmm. that I did it anyways. And I don't even know if it was harmful. Isn't that silly?
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, I mean, no one in my family has been able to, to breastfeed. So I'd, I gave it a shot and it didn't work out and I didn't really look back. But there's an interesting book about that called Bottled Up. But that's a whole other topic. Yeah.
2: That's topic. But, but like, I only bring it up to say that there's there's so much stuff that we do you know, based on our gut feelings. And, you know, because that we're afraid of something, or we're, you know, we we really want to accomplish some goal, and we don't know how. And so we fall prey into these silly things, even the most scientific minded of us fall prey to these silly things. And when you get into a topic as complicated as GMOs, I think it's just, it's not a surprise at all. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So, where can people find you online? Um, well, I'm on Twitter at Genetic Maze. That's M-A-I-Z-E, another word for corn. From there, you can find links to my my public web- website um, AnastasiaBotter.com. Uh, you can find my contact form there, and I look forward to talking with you. Thank you so much. You can
1: find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry pie, P-I like the number pie. And thank you so much again for coming on the show. Thank you. Okay, so that was our interview, and there are, I think, two or three main points that I want to talk about, and Karen wants to talk about a few things, too. The first thing I want to talk about is Anastasia's comments about Sonny Purdue. She might be right that he's pro-business, and that that might be good for biotechnology in terms of the fact that most biotech is done by corporations, but there's a lot of problems that he had. He was one of the first agriculture secretaries that had a significant number of negative votes, people who voted against him in the Senate. And I'm going to post some links as to why. And one of the main things was that he voted against food stamps in Georgia, if he was governor of Georgia. And there's a a really good uh, Mother Jones article that came out in January. So we did this interview in May, this came out in January, five sketchy things about Sonny Perdue. And you could read them. One of them, he was a big fan of the Confederacy, he enacted severe voter ID laws, he championed immigration crackdowns, he has tight ties to uh, industry, and uh, he enjoyed the spoils of cronyism. So I think it's important to kind of separate what he will do as Secretary of Agriculture for agribusiness and biotechnology specifically, versus any concerns someone might have about him as an American overall. The second thing I wanted to talk about with regards to this interview is I come out this podcast, you know, from the standpoint of a feminist and putting a feminist analysis on politics and pop culture. And I think that it was important to talk to Anastasia because I think that a lot of the misinformation... And a lot of the scaremongering that goes on around uh, GMOs and around organic food and that whole thing on Facebook about the the so-called food babe, science babe, whatever she was. A lot of this gets aimed at women. A lot of the misinformation that's out there is to make women afraid and to specifically make mothers afraid. And I think that that's a form of sexism that we we need to talk about. I don't think men are targeted in the same way that women are with this specific kind of misinformation. So to me, that's why this was a feminist issue. Obviously, as a scientist, Anastasia comes at this from a completely different perspective, and I think that's why when I was asking her about controversies about diversity at the Science March, we were kind of talking past each other. I was talking about diversity in terms of race and gender, and I think she was talking about it in terms of intellectual diversity. And Karen, you you wanted to say something about that?
0: Yeah, so that was actually the controversy that I was familiar with, the controversy around representation of people of marginalized identities within science. So people of color, women, people of trans experience, people with different physical abilities. And so I think that that was something that was very, like a real struggle for a lot of people. And I think that there have been a few people who have been loud voices and uh, strong supporters of diversity in STEM. STEM being science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And um, this is an ongoing issue in the industry, but one of the people who I think covered this topic in an incredibly detailed manner, including the history around it and putting it in a historical context, publishes under other sociology and Latino rebel. She's a a sociologist. And her name is Zuleika Zavaios. She's, I believe, Australian? Latin Australian. And she wrote kind of the definitive article, in my opinion, on it on her blog. And so I think we're going to include that in the show notes as an option because I think that we really wanted to touch on that topic being that we come from like a feminist perspective
1: yeah I only wanted to really talk about GMOs and the the gendered food panic about the gendered panic moral panic really about soy but you know Anastasia tweeted at me oh I also want to talk about the science march so I was like great let's talk about the science march so I think there's a disconnect there but I mean I think that's okay and I think that's kind of not necessarily the point, but I think it's something that's going to happen when you have a podcast, when you, you know, open these conversations with people. People come from different perspectives and you're going to you're going to find that out.
0: Yeah, and what she said was really fascinating in many ways, because I did not I was not aware that um, people who are anti-vaccine were being given voice at this March uh, and that there was some interesting anti-science perspective that I think is kind of ironic.
1: I mean, you know, uh, my son has recently been diagnosed with with some food allergies, and I had a a person that I know, just an acquaintance, say to me, he's probably not really allergic. It's probably just GMOs. And I'm sorry, no, he's been diagnosed by, you know, a medical doctor who has a specialty in allergy and immunology, and he has allergies to these specific foods and has nothing to do with with whether or not that food has been genetically modified or not. And and that someone could tell me that with a straight face and with a manner of concern is both ridiculous, insulting, and, and frightening about the level of science education in this country right now. So I, I do think it's important to talk to people like Anastasia specifically about their areas of expertise and really try to understand the the facts and the science behind their work.
0: Yeah, and she's clearly got a lot of information about genetic modification and its impact on the environment and diet. And I think that it's a really fresh perspective to hear, uh, much like you were saying, like GMOs have become a real boogeyman. And I do think also it might be nice to talk about this in terms of the way that mothers are targeted, women are targeted specifically, because women, I feel like, are targeted primarily for most dietary con- like restriction and control. Mm-hmm. And and that's very strongly gendered. And I think that it's a kind of a market where it's rife for exploitation or, or further exploitation, I should say. You know, from a marketing perspective, you can charge a lot more if you advertise as being healthier or a better choice for your child and you wouldn't want to be a bad mother. Definitely. I think it was really fascinating to listen to this interview and I'm really grateful to have heard it. I was really impressed with uh both of your knowledges and uh i'm really grateful to have heard it because i definitely have less of a background in genetic modification so for me a lot of it was like this sounds ridiculous (laughs) after hearing anastasia talk about it you know regardless of whatever uh differences of political perspective we had
1: so you can find me on twitter at miss cherry pie And you can find me at uh, Karen. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. The Political Flavors Feminist
0: Coffee Hour podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget-Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.